welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Anirudh Singh. Our guest today is Devin Parekh, a Managing Director at Insight Partners. Since joining Insight in 2000, Devin has made more than 130 investments in enterprise software, data, and consumer internet businesses globally, including in North America, Europe, India, Israel, China, Africa, Latin America, and Australia. Companies in Devin's portfolio include Checkout.com, DriveWelt, FTX, Splitwise, Bharat Bay, and much more. In addition to his work at Insight, Devin currently serves as board member for the Council of Foreign Relations NYU Langone, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and the Tisch New York MS Research Center. He was also confirmed by the U.S. Senate to serve on the board of directors for the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation. In today's episode, we discuss how Insight supports its portfolio companies, the evolution of fintech investing, Devin's investment in Slice, Gcash, and Pomelo, and much more. Hope you enjoy the show. So hi, Devin, and thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Uh, it's an honor to have you here with us. How are you doing and where are you calling in from? Uh, well, one, thanks for having me. And I'm in Miami, trying to enjoy some uh, nice weather while New York's kind of cold. Yeah, there's a pretty big snowstorm coming in this weekend, so I think you timed it pretty well. Yeah, um, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's just jump right into it. So for listeners who might not know, uh, could you just provide an overview of your career to date? Sure. Man, it was, a, it was a circuitous path. I mean, I don't think if you went back and kind of looked at what I studied in college or at least initially in college or what I was focused on in high school, one would think that I'd end up as a venture capitalist. I actually started out in college as a, as a biochemistry major ended up as an economics major. And I always joke that the reason I ended up as a venture capitalist is because I was impatient. And because my, my objective had always been to be a doctor and I was on that path to be a doctor. And then my roommates all ended up being economics or Wharton majors. And I said, wow, they're all going to be working in four years and I got to go to eight years of school and then do a residency. And it just felt like such a long path that at some point I kind of opted into the shorter path, went to become an economics major and really uh, out of Wharton, uh, actually started my career at um, the Blackstone Group. Uh, doing kind of M and A advisory and private equity, and at the time, you did not get hired. Blackstone was a much smaller firm then than it is today, and you didn't really get hired into a specific group. And then I joined a, a merchant banking boutique called uh, uh, Barrington Manella and Company. Today is called it's still around. It's called Barrington and Company. And while there, I had the opportunity to meet um, Jeff Horing and Jerry Murdoch, who are the founders of uh, Insight. And at the time, they had partnered with Barrington. Manila to kind of do this tech venture capital that uh, they were going to do it on the uh, Berenson platform. They quickly figured out that that we probably weren't the best platform for them to do venture and uh, went off on their own. I'd been the person to work most closely with them, and they talked to me about joining them at the time. And I said, "No, I'm, you know, you don't have a fund, and I'm a successful 25 year old investment banker. I think I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing." Probably wasn't the wisest decision, or I know it wasn't the wisest decision at the time, but we stayed in touch. And then in uh, 2000, when they were raising their first kind of institutional fund, we talked again, and I and I joined Insight uh, in 2000. And have been there ever since. Yeah, it might have been a circuitous path, but it's gone incredibly well. I think safe to say, incredibly well for you since then. You've been on the Forbes Midas list for five consecutive years in the 2010s, uh, and simultaneously, Insight has been a top performing firm for decades. Uh, would just love to get your thoughts on. You know, if you had to pick one skill set that you and the Insight team brings to uh, your founders, your portfolio companies, uh, what do you think that is? What sets you apart from others? Well, you know, it, the answer is different based on 
what, what matters for our investors potentially and what matters for our, you know our you know our uh, founders and our CEOs. But so I'm, I'm going to probably cheat a little bit and not give you just one. Probably the most important thing is passion uh, for what we do. I mean, I think that everybody who works at Insight genuinely loves investing in software and would probably do this if they were making a lot less money. Um, it's just fun, genuinely. Like, you know, we wake up, all of us kind of wake up in the morning, loving what we do. We read about this. We spend our free time studying it. And um, so every day is just like such a joy. And so when you're, when, when you're focusing on something that you have a lot of passion for, I think you tend to, tend to do better at it. So, so that's one. Two, I think our secret sauce really, I think over a long period of time was our sourcing. You know, we had incredibly good uh, sourcing team and we continue to have an incredibly uh, good sourcing team. You know, we talk to over 25,000 companies a year and we have a team of north of 40 people that that's really all they do. But then what's continued to evolve is really our, what we call our onsite team, uh, but our value add team. In fact, the largest part of Insight today, the largest group of people at Insight today is not the investment team. It's actually our onsite operations team. And, you know, I think when you take, and I know you asked for one thing and I gave you like three, but I think it's a combination of those three things that's really uh, helped Insight succeed over the course of the last 25 years. Yeah, actually, I just want to click in on that last point a little bit. I haven't heard of other similarly sized firms have such a large on-site operations team. How did that get started and, and what kind of services do you try to add to your portfolio companies? Yeah, sure. So actually, the, the, the person who runs that group today, Hillary Gosher, is the person who started it back in 2000. So we have the same person that, you know has been doing that kind of ever since. And it started... Uh, it's evolved a lot. It started as almost what I'd call a bespoke consulting firm, uh, where we, we'd bring people with consulting backgrounds. Companies would have a problem. We'd go figure out, we'd help them solve their problem, You know, whatever that was. It could be around sales. It could be around marketing. But it was it was more custom consulting, you know, kind of what a you know McKinsey or Bain would do, but a specialist just for a portfolio. But what it's become today is if you think about every functional area of a uh, software, and I'm you know, I know we're going to talk about fintech, uh, fintech today, and and you know I'm putting software as part of fintech is kind of part of software in, in the way I'm describing it. We'll talk more about fintech further in the conversation, but if you think about every functional element of an organization, so sales, marketing, you know, product development, finance, we have created what we call our COEs, centers that centers of excellence, who kind of work on best practices around that area. So, for example, we just announced an investment this week. And you know, we did our diligence, we closed it, we announced it. We had a call this morning with the management team where each of our centers of excellence went through with the company what we found in diligence in the areas of sales, marketing, product, and more importantly, what we think we can do to help kind of going forward. And in each functional area, we have people who both have kind of come with true operating experience you know, out of a portfolio company, but also people who bring maybe say a consulting background uh, as well. And we bring those disciplines together and then the last component is really collecting massive amounts of data uh, from our companies around not only what works, but what doesn't work, right? Because I think that like everybody, uh, our portfolio companies make mistakes, we make mistakes, and it's just as important to catalog your mistakes as it is to catalog things that work. So that when a company is thinking about a new marketing program or a new sales program or a new kind of product strategy, we can point out examples where that's worked and, that, and where it hasn't worked. And you know that I believe that that team will continue to be uh, the largest growth because as our portfolio size grows, 
you know, one of the things that we take very seriously is a commitment we make to kind of being more than capital. And that's becoming more and more important, not only because it drives value in the company, but it's a competitive differentiator uh, in, in what's a very competitive venture market. And we'll dive deeper into some of your thoughts on fintech in a second. But before we do that, just wanted to pick your brain. Some of my favorite questions to ask VCs on what the best pitch was that you ever heard from a startup and what made it stand out. Uh, and then I'll follow that up with the flip side of it, which is uh, companies that you might have passed on that you wish you hadn't. Yeah, look, both. I mean, there's, there's, you know, lots of examples of both. You know, sadly, unlike some firms, we don't put all of our misses on our website, which we probably should to torture ourselves. But you know, what I often find. So let me answer your your best pitch, and it, it's always hard to narrow these things down to like one. And I always feel like there's a somewhat of a recency effect of things you've done in the last five years are fresher in your mind than things you might have done 10 or 15 years ago. But you know, I'm going to pick one, which is, so check out, you know, which is a fint, I'll pick them as a fintech deal. And I pick it because there are lots of reasons to say like that, that really shouldn't be that interesting that, you know, kind of merchant processing is kind of this market that's been around for a long time. Uh, you both have large incumbents, but you have next gen companies like, you know, Audion and um, Stripe, uh, like in those markets. And so here comes along this kind of company that is kind of going after that market that has a really high valuation. I'm talking about the valuation then, not the valuation now, which is <laughs> it's even higher. And I remember that a couple of my colleagues had met with the company and said, hey, he's really, the founder is really impressive, but the price is really high. It's a really competitive market. Probably doesn't make sense for us to keep going. And uh, I remember the, the associate at the time on the deal pushed me really, really hard to meet this entrepreneur. And uh, to her credit, uh, she, she kind of made it happen. And I remember walking out of that meeting and my partner who had looked at it previously and said, I love it, but I think we should pass. So what do you think? I said, absolutely, we should do it. And so what was it about the pitch? You know, in this case, it wasn't just the pitch because like, we can talk about why it's a big market and payments is going to become because of what's going on in e-commerce adoption, payments will become bigger and bigger. The TAM is large, it's global. The, you know, they were focused more on some global markets where you know, Stripe has been more, more US focused. But to me, the, the key in that decision was the founder. That what, what, what I came away with after that lunch was that this was somebody who understood their market really well, understood their product really well, but more importantly, was going to constantly innovate and come up with ways to you know, expand TAM in ways that I couldn't even predict. And really, while I liked the market and all of that, it was a bet on, you know, it was a bet on a person. And I think it's so true in venture oftentimes, right? Because there's lots of large markets, but most people don't capture them. Um, and it takes somebody, you know, with that vision, kind of that long-term uh, orientation, the ability to make big bets to kind of make it happen. And Guillaume is the founder and CEO of Checkout was one of those people. And that was that was what was the best part about the pitch was that kind of instant connection with him and really feeling like he was really going to figure out how to make this market work. The interesting thing is the, the miss. And look, there's so many, but I, I just like to use this example because it's, um, I think it's a nice foil to what we just you know, talked about, you know, which is Uber. Uh, and we, we looked at it relatively early, right? So I know it's been volatile, but from where we looked at it, it's, it's still, <laughs> it would have been a great investment. And whatever people would want to say about Travis, and Travis has certainly been controversial, I think it's, he, he certainly had some of those same qualities as well as it relates to kind of having a really long-term vision of what that kind of business could be. And the thing that we missed in Uber was the thing, and I'm not going to take 
I'm not going to say because I missed an Uber, I saw it in checkout. But the thing that we missed in Uber was the thing I just said, which is that we looked at a cab market and we said the TAM is constant, right? Like you have a cab market in New York of, of San Francisco at that time, like $500 million or $600 million. And New York was, I don't remember the numbers anymore. And they were looking for a valuation that was multiples of the total addressable market of New York and San Francisco. And we said, well, that just doesn't make any sense. How can we, like, how can we invest? And we missed like the, the very simple thing that the cab market in San Francisco was terrible. Friction was really high. It was not at all seamless. Uh, people often waited and the cab never showed up. And that when you change it to this magical experience where you press a button and Uber shows up, the, the size of the market expanded. And so I think the thing that we missed there, and hopefully I, I got a checkout, was that market sizes are, are not constant. Market sizes constantly evolve. And that when you have new innovation, this is particularly true in fintech, new innovation enables markets to grow because there's new applications that come to pass that were not there before, right? And so I, I feel like for me, that was a good learning. It's been a good learning on the positive side on checkout is that you know, maybe we, we missed it uh, somewhere else. I'm sure we'll miss it somewhere else again. But I think this kind of, because TAM is this thing that every, you know, we all VCs love to talk about TAM, but we often treat it statically. And treating something that's static in a market with high innovation is probably probably not a great idea. Anyway, so that's that would be my that would be my uh, the two stories I would use there. Just like you mentioned, for your operations team, keeping data on what works and what doesn't work. That's the exact same reason why I like to ask these two questions. Like you said, it's important to remember what didn't work, for example, with the, with the Uber diligence and yeah. potentially course corrected there for, for checkout. And you're certainly not the only VC that, that passed on Uber. No, lots of, <laughs> lots of people yeah. did and lots of people yeah. passed on, you know, uh, checkout and other yeah. people did Uber. And, you know, I mean, th- I mean, this is yeah. why, I mean, this is not a commodity market because people have differentiated points of view. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's, uh, let's shift now to a bit more of a fintech focus, although I'm sure we could have gone on a tangent there for a while. Just, I would love to hear your thoughts on how the fintech industry has evolved during your career as an investor, and if there's any things that you think made it so ripe for, for growth and investment dollars um, over the last 10 years. So first thing I'd say, and I, I, this morning I just kind of looked through some of the prior guests and stuff that you guys have had, and it, you guys have uh, really created, I think, a really nice podcast. Congratulations on all the success and the amazing guests you've gotten on the show. But one of the things I would say is relative to a lot of people that you've had on the show, I'm actually relatively new to fintech. And you know, Insight's actually on, on a relative basis, pretty new to fintech. For the long so for, first let's define fintech. <laughs> and I think our if you go back 10 years to use your time span and you were to look at our portfolio, there was very little, there was very little fintech in our portfolio. And at the time you had the companies like, and I don't remember the exact dates here, but I'm just I'm talking about general times. You know, you had the lending clubs of the world, and by the way, which has had a remarkable turnaround now, but it obviously went through a pretty difficult uh, period of time. And we basically decided at that time to not play in that market. And uh, here was our view of that, uh, which was that we thought, okay, so here you have these set of companies that are competing against incumbent banks. So if you're a lending club, you're really competing against, you know, Citibank, Bank of America, you know, providing loans, and you're coming with a with a brand. You know, you're coming with a brand that nobody knows relative to you know Citibank. You're coming with underwriting that just by definition can't be as developed as Citibank or kind of Bank of America. And so really just it's a marketing game and customer acquisition game. And a lot of those companies grew their 
customer acquisition, all kinds of ways like direct mail, right? Like not even ways that are or online. And so what we said is like, we don't really know how to evaluate that business. We don't really know how to evaluate why they're going to be a better lender, why they're not going to have more credit losses than, you know, the, um, and so we said, look, I think, so we sat that out. And by the way, that was, there's some companies that did really well. So I don't, I don't want to say that we sat it out and look, wasn't that so great. We missed some deals. We also missed some things that didn't work out. And instead, what we did is we said, well, the incumbents, there's no doubt that the incumbents are going to need to react to innovation. And that if you're Bank of America or your Citibank, your problem is your process is not a great process, right? As a consumer. And so you're going to need to compete. You're going to make it more efficient. And so we started looking at companies that sold software to incumbents uh, to try to make them better, right? So I'll just use one example, but like Encino, still a public company today. It's a loan origination software uh, sold into banks, right? And it's software that makes the banks better at their existing business by using a software solution rather than you know spreadsheets. And that's been a great investment for us. And we made a bu- bunch of other bets like that, but they're really more SaaS software selling to financial institutions to kind of make them better and more efficient. And that's frankly been more the heritage of Insight has really been kind of software. Then about, you know, th- whatever it's three and a half years ago, made the investment in checkout. And, you know, and we had at the same, we'd also uh, at about the same time, one of my partners made an investment in uh, Divi. And so we made these kind of couple of bets. And um, I think what we saw coming out of those investments, because you know, when you, you make these investments, you have to diligence the whole market, look at everything else, is we it changed our view a little bit in that a couple of things. One, you know, I think probably 10 years ago we thought, you know, the banks are gonna figure it out. They're just gonna get a lot better. Uh, and it's gonna be really hard to compete against them. And we kind of looked like 10 years or seven or eight years later, and they really hadn't gotten that better. They hadn't really innovated kind of that much. And so we said, you know, we should take a fresh look, you know, at this market. And so we we started first with kind of payments, you know, with checkout. We're not, if you look interestingly at where we've played, it's not like we've played in every segment, you know, of fintech. I mean, interestingly, if you look at, if you look at kind of where we've been the most active, it actually hasn't been in the US, right? Because I think one of the things that we uh, one of the conclusions that we kind of came to as we started looking at the uh, ecosystem is that, okay, so you, yes, the banks in the U.S. were not where they should be from an innovation standpoint, but yet most of the people I knew were doing online banking with B of A or City, and they might complain about it. But they're, but when you went globally and you looked at the rising middle class in all of these places in Latin America and Asia and and and, and other places. What you saw was a banking system that wasn't yet that evolved uh, and accessible to kind of the broader swath. And so what we saw is we, look, we looked at a lot was what was going on in the U.S. with some of the neobanks, and we invested in a neobank in, you know, in Europe as well. And what we saw was a, a couple of areas that we've kind of you know, focused on. One is that we do think that there's just a evolving financial services value chain. So what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is I there's a view that more people, more companies are going to get into financial services, even if they're not a financial services company. So whether that's a software company that might say you can finance your software, whether it's software companies that are basically, or if you look at like a Shopify, uh, it would be a good example, was somebody that ended up driving a lot of value out of the payments piece, right? So I have the software, 
you'll put the transactions through my channel, and then you're going to kind of start capturing the payments. So one trend is like this kind of financial services being integrated into a much bigger swath of companies. And there's lots of companies focusing on that. The second is kind of alternative forms of payments globally, right? And there we played more globally. So it's, you know, whether that be next generation wallets, whether that be P2P payments, we just saw that the adoption curve in all of that in the emerging markets was going to be enormous. So that was an area that we spent a lot of focus on. And then third, and not final, but so I'm just giving you like three big ones, um, is I'll call it embedded finance, right? So one of the other things, if you look globally, what do people want to invest in as they get more money and they have a banking account? What do they want to do next? They want to invest in stocks. Where do they want to invest in stocks? They don't want to invest their stocks in Indonesian stocks. They don't want to invest in Australian stocks. They want to invest in Tesla. When I say, I don't mean literally Tesla, but I mean US stocks. And so embedded finance is basically how do you get, so what's happening right now, if you're a company that has a wallet in Indonesia, well, people have to go open up an account somewhere else or open up a Robinhood account or do something to, to get access to those things. And so embedded finance basically says, how do you embed the capability for people to do things that they want to do, whether that be banking or equities on a global basis? Right. So I just went on a long kind of, exposition of some of the areas that we think are interesting, but and we didn't even talk about crypto, uh, but I'll let you kind of push w- which direction yeah. you want to go in from there. Yeah, that I mean, that was a fantastic answer. So I, I was happy to let you uh, yeah. keep going with that one. Yeah. It was interesting you mentioned Lending Club to start the conversation. I think that was such an incredible catalyst for the fintech industry. And I actually just submitted a case for class on Lending Club and one of the questions uh, in the case was, if you were an analyst at the time, would you have valued the company as a specialty finance company? Uh, so looking more at like the, the fact, treating it like a lender, or would you value it as a tech company? And I think that's kind of a little bit of what you were hinting at there as well, which is there weren't any really good comps at the time for Lending Club. So it's tough to say that it was actually going to have significantly higher than, say, a 2x. No, and, 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 and at the time, if I'm being honest, I think we thought, thought about it more as a specialty finance company than a tech company. And we were not necessarily persuaded that them or some of their other, and I don't want to, I'm not, I don't mean to pick on Lending Club because I think there's other companies out there that are doing something similar. We just weren't, we were not convinced and we were probably wrong, but we were not convinced that there was as much tech there. We felt like it was more of a marketing channel than it was kind of differentiated tech from like an underwriting standpoint. So like that was our, our view at the time. And our views on all of these things have evolved, obviously, as we've kind of spent more time studying them. Yeah. And, and you talked a lot about being heavily involved in international investments. Uh, so I actually wanted to dive into three of those international investments you've made in the, in the fintech space. Uh, it's actually, yeah. it's one of my favorite things to do with the VCs is just to pick your brain on, on why did you choose a specific company that you did. So if you don't mind, I would love to start with uh, Slice from India, the yep. challenger credit card company. Yeah. So credit card penetration in India is very low. Well, it's sub 5%. And if you think about, people think about Slice today as, as you described it, a challenge for credit card company, which is what they are, right? So what, what they're basically doing is they're, they're, they're kind of going after people who are kind of new to credit and offering them credit most, most of the time for the first time. They have a Capital One-like credit model. So they've invested a lot in the tech. 
around underwriting. So here there is definitely an extent, extension of credit you know, component to this business. But what we think is that credit card, and we typically, they, they get very limited credit to start and they can build their credit over time as they show the ability to pay back. It's interesting because of the trend that everybody talks about right now is buy now, pay later, right? Like, and you know, we, we've got a few investments in that space too. But the funny thing is, what's the original buy now, pay later concept? It's called a credit card. Like buy now credit, buy now, pay later has, been exist, has existed for a very long time, right? And this is really a way to be able to give consumers access to buy now. The difference is that most buy now, pay later companies are integrating at a point of sale in a particular company, right? So I'm going to do my Peloton on buy now, pay later, where you could just as easily put a credit card down on the Peloton site and also finance it, right? What I'm excited about, about Slice, though, is I think that's just our entry point to acquiring that customer. And like the, if I had to use the analogy is, I see us over time becoming like the new bank of India, right? So new bank is, we're not investors in new bank, but you, know, you have to start with a wedge. You have to start with a wedge that gives customers something that they need, that they can't get access to from the existing channels. But once you do that, and once you give them a positive experience and you build your credit with them, and as they get, as they move up their income cycle, you can offer them a broader swath of services. So I see slice over time, credit cards are a wedge. It's a good wedge. It's a profitable wedge. We're growing really quickly, but I see us being a much broader kind of financial services companies servicing that segment of the Indian population, which is growing at a very rapid pace. When, when you asked what was the, what's the original buy now pay later, my simplistic head always goes to those infomercials you used to see Three easy payments of 1995. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. But but where did you put the three easy payments of of 1995 on your credit card? Um, So anyway, that's that's the slice. uh, That's the slice thesis. Yeah, that's great. We had um, Uni on the show uh, with uh, Nitin Gupta. Somewhat of a similar concept of significantly under under tapped credit card market in India that's expected to grow, and it's definitely a good place to. The good thing about the good thing about fintech, in my mind is just to talk about a competitor, is that the market sizes are so large that they're not winner-takes-all market, right? So there are other kind of SaaS markets where if the, your total market's 300 million, 500 million, like number one and number two, suck all the oxygen out. And number two probably is not worth, is, is worth a big fraction, of, is worth a fraction of number one. I think in FinTech, it's one of the reasons I like the market is it's so big that for checkout to be successful does not mean Stripe won't be successful, right? I think it's entirely possible for Stripe, Adi, and, and checkout to all be worth a lot of money. It's not zero sum. And I think that's always that's one of the advantages of being in big markets. And Slice, I think, is an example of that. And just moving on to the next uh, portfolio company. So uh, Gcash is a Philippine company uh, offering digital wallets. Can you yeah. talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, I mean, this is like the classic... Um, if you think about what, I mean, I'm not sure that this is how the Slice team might describe it, but I'm just, I think about this way. If I think about what Slice could become, you know, over five years, I think it's, it would look like Gcash from a model standpoint, right? Which is that if you think, so G, Gcash, and we, you know, talk, we did some surveys and stuff of people in the Philippines. And this is kind of the ones for the middle class and even lower middle class. This is a one-stop shop for 
payments, investing, credit lines, e-commerce, like that's where you go. I mean, the, the, the closest analog would be Ant in China, right? It's like a one-stop shop to be able to kind of get all of this stuff. And the company's by far the market share leader uh, in the Philippines. This is a company that's got substantial scale, is profitable, and is kind of reinvesting those profits, just continuing to both add more users, but I think more importantly, add more and more utility to those users, right? So that you become, to me, the goal is to get to a point where people, you know, there's a few things that we all check every day, right? People look at their their email, they look at their texts, they probably look at some stock market app or some financial app. And my goal in these types of markets is you kind of want that app to be one of those, you know, one of those apps that people, they don't have to transact every day, but I, I want them in it every day. And I think, you know, Gcash really is, has that kind of potential to be one of the very, very, it already is to some degree, but over time can kind of be one of those few apps that almost everybody's using on a daily basis. Amazing. And the, the last company I wanted to dive into a little bit was um, Pomelo, uh, yeah. the Latin American company. Well, it's interesting. You also probably not knowingly, you pick very different stages, right? Yeah. So um, <laughs> you know, by far, Gcash is like the latest stage company. Slice is somewhere kind of in the middle, true kind of growth equity. And Pomelo is probably the earliest stage of those three companies. And you know, if you think about in LATAM, just like in India, Debit card, prepaid, credit card uh, penetration is low, but increasing kind of rapidly. And if you think about the, the analog, the easiest analog for Pamela is probably Marketa, right? Which is if you look at, you know, Pamela is really the Marketa for Latin America, which is what they're basically doing is making it much easier to issue new cards. So if you're a bank and you want to start issuing either virtual or secure uh, credit or debit cards, Pamela is an infrastructure software that you're going to infrastructure, basically, you're going to use in order to do that. And it takes, it takes the time to be able to <clears throat> issue. It's just a complex process to issue cards in Latin America. And it can take as long as for a bank to go into a new region and start issuing, can take as long as 15 months. And you know, Pamela takes it down to two months or less. And so it gets it allows banks to get into new markets, new, new regional markets, and start issuing cards very quickly. And when you're in a market where card penetration is growing and there's a lot of demand for it, uh, the banks want to become more facile in being able to do it. And Pamelo kind of solves that pain point. It's such a cool experience to be able to pick your brain on fintech across the world because there are so many regional differences. And, and I think you've done a great job of highlighting some of them and what makes com different companies successful in different parts of the world. So thank you for that. I would love to zoom out a little bit and look at the, uh, the industry as a whole again and think about the future of the industry. Are there any subsectors within fintech that you think are particularly exciting, uh, say, for the next three to five years? Well, I think that the all, listen, all the trends that we just talked about, they're all in very early innings, right? So these are still, in my view, second inning, first inning, second inning type bets. I think there's regions that are very interesting. We've started investing. We haven't announced a bunch of these deals yet, but like Africa, I think it's a very interesting market. We've got one deal, Flutterwave, that we're, we have announced, but we have another deal that we're announcing in the next few weeks um, in Africa. Again, underdeveloped banking systems, so a push to online is, is probably even stronger than in, in Asia. So I think there's some regions that I think are, you know, are particularly interesting, um, like Africa. I guess the thing we haven't talked about at all is, you know, is crypto, and we can debate, is crypto part of fintech or not? We debate that internally, too. But 
you know, there's no doubt that one thing that you're seeing, and, you know, I feel like the problem with talking about cryptos is almost like it's a religious, uh, it becomes like a religious argument. And I try to think about these things in kind of intellectual and practical terms. So one thing that's indisputable um, is that you have a massive amount of a tier one, the software development talent that's going into Web3. Now, does that necessarily mean that Web3 will succeed? No, it doesn't. But it, it's generally a positive sign when you see a lot of really the best developers going into kind of a new market. So, you know, we've, um, I, I would say we've been uh, dipping our toe, uh, you know, in, in, in crypto with a number of investments. Um, but I would say the way we've played it has been more on an infrastructure type basis, right? So I don't know which protocol is the right protocol necessarily. And I don't necessarily know which, you know, token wins in the long term. I have, we have views internally, but it's hard, it's hard to know. But the infrastructure, if you believe that crypto is here to stay as a market, and you can debate, you could say it's here just as a spec as a form of speculation, which some people believe. I think most people would say that it's going to be here for a form of speculation at a minimum, right? Um, as some store of value, you know, as a minimum. I say I, I put air quotes around that because you know, over the last three weeks, it's hard. It's been hard to argue that it's been a great store of value, but but I think there's a belief that there's a, at a minimum, there's probably a, a market for speculation. And at a maximum, the maximalist would say it's going to, it's basically all software is going to get replaced by crypto. All payments is going to get replaced by, you know, crypto. I'm probably not there either. I, I, I'm probably somewhere in the middle, which is, I think you'll have some specific applications and, you know, the one like NFTs, for example, where you, know, you can really talk about use cases that make sense that like art and collectibles and kind of other markets where I think those markets are going to, they're, they're going to be here. And there's going to be markets that are going to service the infrastructure uh, for those. So we've made bets in um, FTX was an exchange. Uh, we've made a bet in a company called Candy, which is in the sports collectible space and uh, NFTs. We made an investment in a company called Taxbit, uh, which is focused on paying your taxes uh, for crypto. Which you know, I think I think there's increased recognition and understanding that it's actually an asset. You do have to pay taxes on it. But uh, you know, Taxbit provides a software solution uh, for the brokerage firms and others to be able to you know, comply with what is going to be increased IRS scrutiny, you know, on crypto. So our and we've got a bunch of others we're spending time on now. So our bets in crypto have been more around the I'll call it the picks and shovels, right? Which is that you don't know where gold is going to or oil is going to strike, but you kind of need to know that you're going to have to mine, you're going to have to drill, you're going to have to do those basic things, and there's infrastructure that you're going to need in order to do that. And so our so far, you know. Our focus has really been around that. I like to take an as encompassing view as of fintech as possible. So I'll definitely lump crypto uh, into the bucket. But I know a lot of crypto people might uh, not. Yeah, like that's that. why. That's why I said <laughs> um, it's, 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 yeah. certainly, it's certainly open for debate. Yeah. Well, I'll say a lot of the smartest classmates that I know uh, that are in the fintech club. It's a very big club here at Penn, uh, Warden. A lot of them that I think would have gone into banking 15 years ago or private equity or something else in traditional financial services. Are going into Web three firms right now, so I'm not surprised. You, yeah, you're you're totally spot on on that. Um, Devin, the last thing I wanted to do today was just ask you a few rapid fire questions to help the audience get to know you a little bit better. Okay. Um, for for these questions, we're hoping to get answers in, in about ten seconds or less. So, okay. uh, ready to go? Ready to go. Let's do it. Uh, what is your proudest accomplishment to date? Proudest accomplishment to date is uh, raising my two boys. One of whom is a freshman at uh, Penn, and uh, one's a junior at uh, Claremont McKenna. 
That's amazing. Congratulations. What is your favorite book? I get asked this question all the time. So this is not going to be a 10 second answer. Uh, and every time I give the answer, I give a different book because I read a lot of books. Uh, and so there's definitely a recency effect. But since this is a FinTech podcast, I think one, and it's actually a book I recommend it to my kids. It's called The Psychology of Money. And it's written by Morgan, I think it's Housel uh, is his name. And it's, it's a book I wish I read before I started working. And it really, it, the title's appropriate. It's about how we think about money and our relationship with money. And I'd recommend it to anybody at any point, but I particularly recommend it to people at the start of their career. For that book, I think, especially if you're seeing a change in your income one way or the other, that's an incredible book to read at that time. Which um, I think generally people from Wharton are expecting. <laughs> so it's a good fit. Yeah, fingers crossed. What is something on your bucket list that you haven't been able to do yet? You know, just, there's just so many places that I've not been yet and traveled to yet. And I, and, you know, COVID has really put a big dent in, you know, kind of whatever uh, plans I had, but, you know, I've been, I've been lucky. I've been able to hit a lot of things on the bucket list. And my goal in 2022 is to get back to travel. Do you have any hidden talents? No, I think my, I don't think I've hidden talents. I mean, I think that my, uh, you know, I, I, I'm really, this is going to sound very old fashioned, but I really do believe that there's two kind of things that are really important for success. One is there's always some luck, but I do believe that you people make their luck. And so I'm a big believer in hard work. I remember when my son was starting an internship and he said, dad, do you have any advice? And I said, yeah, I think you should be the first one in and the last one out. And he was like, that's your only advice. <laughs> I said, well, you know, if you just do that, you're already better than everybody else at something. And, uh, you know, I think people forget that. And I think I see this a lot, particularly from people that we interview out of schools like Penn is that, you know, they've generally gone through their entire life. They're very smart. So there are lots of shortcuts along the way to, you know, how to, how to get stuff done. And, but like long-term in life, I don't believe in shortcuts. Uh, and so if I have, I don't think it's a hidden talent. I don't even think it's a talent. It's just, I have the ability to stay really focused on something and work at it and work at it and work at it. The only small problem with that advice is uh, the work from home model uh, with last one in. Fair enough, but I'm, 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 I'm going to go. I'm going to take an optimistic view that we're, we're, we're at the end yeah. uh, and that soon we'll be back in the office. Uh, last question for today is just, and you can take a little bit longer on this one if you'd like. Um, what do you hope to see inside Accomplish in 2022? You know, I think it's, um, well, the, the trite answer is, or the boring answer is more of the same, but you know, what I feel like we've done a really good job on over the last couple of years, and I hope that we as a firm continue, is one of our kind of core values is a, a focus on continuous reinvention. And so being in fintech, that's reinvention. Like we were not there really in any meaningful way uh, a couple years ago. You know, we went from being, we probably did a few Series A deals a year to I think last year we were the second largest number of Series A deals of anyone globally because we saw the opportunity to kind of move into, you know, that segment as well. So I just, I, I'll state this at a high level. I, I, you know, the thing that I think has made us successful as a firm is a commitment amongst everybody uh, in the firm for continuous reinvention. And my only hope is that we continue to bring people on who share that value and that we keep doing it. And that if I were to do this podcast again in two years, we'll be talking about things that we're doing that I couldn't even imagine today. Well, I will uh, make a note to get back to you two years from now or whoever's running the podcast at the time to get back to you two years from now. And uh, we'll check back and, and see how that went. But um, Devin, I think that's a great place to wrap it up for today. Thank you so much for the time. 
great to get to pick your brain on on your career and, and your some of your investments. Uh, so thank you again. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Medium, and Twitter at Wharton FinTech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I would also like to thank our editor, Raphael Austria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Anirudh Singh.